This is going to be the last portion of our lecture on the doctrines of grace concerning total depravity, or a better term, as we've talked about, radical inability. And this portion, this last portion of it, we're going to be talking about how this coincides with the human will, what we know about ourselves and our ability to make decisions and to make choices. Now, we found, as we studied through this topic, that we are desperately lost in sin, according to God's word. We found that no one can come to God, no one can choose God, or even believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and be saved unless God first makes that person alive in Christ and draws him or her to himself. But this topic troubles many people. And so it, it's worth examining so we can solidify it in our thought. And if we, if we are unsure about it, let's take some time to try and understand it so that we find the truth in it, that we find comfort in it, and that we feel uh, able to explain it to a certain extent to other people. We know that we have an ability to choose things, don't we? We can decide what we're going to wear. We can decide what we're going to eat. We make decisions continually, constantly in our life. When we reach a certain age, we have this ability to decide, and we love that. So we have this experience that seems to go against some of Scripture's teachings. Well, it just seems to go against it. There's really no contradiction. We just have to look at it closely and examine it, kind of unpack it a little bit and see exactly what's being said and think deeply about ourselves and how the human being is constructed, how God has given us certain attributes and really what they mean. So <clears throat> Ephesians 2.1, we've read that we are dead in our, trust, in our transgressions and sins. You know, we, we do not have an ability to make the choice for God because of, of this condition we're in. And we know that Jesus Christ said, John records it in chapter 6 of his gospel, that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That, that it is the work of God to bring us to Christ. Yet also in the Bible, don't we see numerous invitations for sinners to repent of their sins and come to Christ? We see this, you know, we hear it. And so how do we, how do we reconcile these? How do they match? How do they come together? They, they do come together. But unless we think about it, we're going to end up with the contradiction and we're going to walk away puzzled. Well, let's start off. I want to look at uh, Isaiah chapter 55. I'm going to read verse 1. Isaiah 55, verse 1. So the prophet Isaiah is writing here. And he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So there's a call going on here. And the call is from the Lord. Come to the water and drink. 
And he who has no money, come and buy. Now how can you come and buy if you have no money? There's, there's obviously an implication here that something is to be purchased, that a price must be paid. Yes, a price must be paid, and it is, that price is paid by Christ. We, we do not have to pay that. We, we don't have the money. We don't have the currency. Remember last time we met, we talked about um, uh, monopoly money as opposed to U.S. currency? So when we go to buy that eternal water with our monopoly money, we're not going to get anything. We have to have the currency of heaven with us. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the one who's making the offer. Christ makes this offer. We should think about, if we're thinking about the water, buying water. <clears throat> think of that, 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 that well-known account in John chapter 4. Jesus at the well of Samaria, where he meets that woman. And he's telling her about the living water. And she wants this living water. This is a reference going back to Isaiah 55. Then later, the Feast of the Trumpets, on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus is Jerusalem at the temple. He stands up. And, and so it's a, it's a, at this point in, in Jewish history, it's an eight-day feast. For seven days, there's a special ceremony where water is poured, signifying uh, a sacrifice, a water sacrifice to Yahweh. On the eighth day, the water is not poured. There's no pouring of the water. There's no water ceremony. There's no, there's no water offering. But Jesus stands up. And he says, He who wants... Water, he who thirsts, come to me. Referring back again to Isaiah 55. This, this water that uh, Isaiah is talking about, that we must buy. Christ is saying, I will give it to you. You just need to come to me. Okay, so this is an offer that we hear um, that is put out basically to all, isn't it? It's... It's easy to say, well, this is uh, a universal offer that, um, that everyone must then have the ability to accept it. Remember that Jesus, when he was discussing with the Pharisees, that he told them the reason for their unbelief in John chapter 10. The reason for their unbelief, he said, is you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. So this call that goes out from Christ is heard by who? Heard by his sheep. It's not heard by those that are not amongst his sheep. That's what Jesus says. You're not hearing it because it's not intended for you. You do not have the ability to hear it. He 
says, I know them. I know my sheep. And they follow me. I give them eternal life for they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hands. So I think here we can get an understanding of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, that no one seeks God because it's Jesus that is calling, that is making this offer to his sheep. They're not lost sheep that are going, wandering through the wilderness, looking for their shepherd. The shepherd is calling to them. So this whole topic of human will and how, how it works into God's plan of salvation has been an important area of discussion throughout church history. And I think that it's very helpful if we go back and we look at these discussions that have been held through church history to see what was said, to see the arguments that were presented and why they were presented. And when we do this, which we're going to do, you'll notice that the arguments have not changed much over the centuries. They remain basically the same. They're often repeated again and again. The first one I want to look at that we're going to discuss is the debate between Augustine and Pelagius. This was in the 5th century A.D. Augustine was the bishop of Hippo, which was in North Africa, a Roman province, present-day Algeria. Pelagius... You may, have, you may have heard his name, you may not have. You may have heard the term, often people today will describe themselves as semi-Pelagian. They're, you know, they're like halfway in Pelagian's camp and halfway not. They think Pelagian was maybe a little bit too radical. Well, what was Pelagian all about? Pelagian was a British monk. And in his vocation as a monk, he was given the opportunity to travel to Rome. Now, this was a very exciting thing for Pelagian because he's going to the center, the home of the mother church, so thought of at this time in the early medieval um, era. He arrives in Rome, and he is shocked. Shocked, I tell you, because of the depravity and the immorality that he sees every place. How could this be in the holy city? It's worse than in Britain. It's worse than in France or Gaul as he traveled through there. It's the worst he's ever seen. And many of these, probably, I would say, probably all that he saw in Rome at least took the name of Christian, that they were at least nominally Christian, um, that there really wasn't much <clears throat> else 
um, expressed in the eternal city at this time than Christianity. So it's, it's especially shocking to Pelagian. So Pelagian kind of goes on a moral crusade that he is going to stand up for right living, for ethics, for morality, which is a great thing, right? We, we should do that. We should try to live moral lives. But he got off course in this. And getting off course brought him in conflict with the teachings of Augustine. Now, Augustine was a very learned man. He was considered to be one of the first great, if not the first great theologian of the, of the early church. And he took, Pelagius specifically took offense to a prayer that Augustine had written in his writings on the gift of perseverance. And Augustine's prayer was this, grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. So Pelagius' disagreement was that it was necessary for God to grant what he commands us. Pelagius assumed that moral responsibility always carries with it moral ability. Now think about that. We hear that all the time today. Moral responsibility must be connected to the ability to carry it out. Well, that's the stumbling block that Pelagius had with Augustine. Pelagius argues for the existence of free will. Now, free will is a very problematic term. What does it mean? I would say that um, most people who discuss the idea of free will do not understand what it means when a philosopher or a theologian speaks of free will. Even those that, even those philosophers and theologians who argue for free will think this. I think it's better if we call it libertarian free will. Libertarian free will means that we make decisions that are not connected in any way, shape, or form to any of the other experiences or circumstances in our life. That we can make decisions totally unimpacted by other events. That we can separate ourselves intellectually, emotionally, etc., etc., from everything going on around us that ha and has gone on around us and will go on around us in the future and make a decision based on that. I, I submit to you that that is impossible. But when, when, when you hear the term free will in a philosophical discussion, basically that, that's what it means. And it's always good to ask, if someone's talking about free will, well, what do you mean 
by free will? What exactly, how do you define it? And that way you can, you know, you can meet on some common ground there. So, like I was saying, Pelagian, he argues for the existence of free will. <clears throat> and this idea of free will is that the human person is controlled completely by their will, what they decide, and not bound at all by sin. So Pelagian is actually arguing against the idea of original sin, right? And we talk, we've talked about that, about how important that is into this, in this concept of radical inability, that we are suffering the consequences of the fall in the garden, that we do not have this ability to make the choice for God. So his idea is that we are actually, our will is actually neutral. And we're free to choose at any given moment either good or evil. Well, you can understand where he's coming from because of what he's seen in Rome. And he just thinks people should just turn away from that. That they have the ability to do so. And out of this idea has grown this, the, the concept of sinless perfection, right? The idea that if we just try hard enough, that we can live lives completely free of sin. In which, in which case, I don't think we would need a savior. But um, anyway, the problem with the idea of Pelagius's concept of this neutrality and freedom to choose, it leads to a view of sin only as deliberate acts and unrelated acts in which the will actually chooses to do evil. That when you sin, it's only because you have chosen at that point in time to do a sinful act. It must be intentional. And it's unrelated to anything else going on around you or unrelated to who you are as a fallen person. So this resulted in the loss of the concept of any connection between sins and this hereditary principle of sin in humanity, this original sin going back to Adam. That was totally forgotten by Pelagius. He just kind of pushed that aside. So Pelagius, of course, knew of the fall, um, and it's something he had to deal with. How does he explain it? So he did explain it. And his argument is that the sin of Adam affected no one but Adam himself. And all of us born since Adam have been born into the exact same condition Adam was in before the fall. A position of neutrality. That we have the ability to not go down that road that Adam has gone down that we could actually look at Adam as a negative example. That we should look at Adam and like, well, I'm not going to do that. I see where, it, where he ended up, so I'm going to go a different route. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history. And I've yet to come across an example of when someone has been able to do that. And if you guys can think of someone, then I would love to have that discussion with you. 
But I'm certain that most of you are sitting there thinking, no, I don't think there's anyone like that. So, Pelagius declares, we are free to live from sin if we choose to do so. It's just a matter of us making the right decision. And we can recognize that this is un, that is this is <clears throat> this is likely the underlying principle that most Christians hold today. That there is a, a massive rejection of the idea of original sin. It grinds against us, doesn't it, that we're told that no, um, you're just in this condition, and the only one that can get you out of it is the Lord Jesus Christ. That goes against this desire for autonomy that we have as part of our sinful condition. The problem with this thinking, though, this Pelagian way of thinking, or semi-Pelagian, so the semi-Pelagian, basically what the semi-Pelagian says is, yeah, Pelagian's on the right track. We've got, I've got to get halfway to God, and God will... Meet me there. So half of it's my responsibility and half of it's God's. It's not all mine. I, it's impossible for me to get all the way, but I've got to get half the way. So that's, that's a lot of what you hear today. But here's the problem with Pelagianism, even semi-Pelagianism. It limits the nature and scope of sin. It leads to a denial of the necessity of God's unmerited grace in salvation. If we can make the right choices and free our own selves from sin, what do we need grace for? What do we need the Lord Jesus Christ for? If we have this ability, we just have to exercise it properly. The entire supernatural working of the Holy Spirit is removed and replaced by a person's will which means the glory of salvation belongs not to God. Who does the glory of salvation belong to under this premise? But to man. We should glorify in ourselves. Well, we don't have a problem with that, do we? We can do that pretty easily. That's not a matter of making the right choice. That seems to be our default, that we glory in ourselves. Interestingly, Augustine thought along the same lines as Pelagius early in his life. He thought it was a matter of just making the right choices. He thought it was a matter of moral neutrality. We start, we start at this pristine, in a pristine condition, and then... You know, we take a step wrong way, but we can take a two steps back the right way. That's what he was thinking. However, he came to see that view does not do justice to what the Bible teaches. That it completely shoves aside all of the biblical teaching of sin or the grace of God in salvation. God's word does not teach this idea of our moral neutrality. It teaches our fallen condition and our need for a Savior. We, can, we look at the Bible, and we look at the greatest figures in the Bible, and what is pointed out to us but their fallenness. 
if the greatest men could not make the right choice time after time after time, then what hope do you or I have? None whatsoever, apart from Christ. Augustine realized that the Bible always speaks of sin as more than mere isolated and individual acts. The Bible speaks of sin as a connection, as a thread that runs through humanity. The Bible speaks of an inherited depravity, an inherited sinfulness, an inherited radical inability as a result of which it's simply not possible for the individual to stop sinning. Now, we had a wonderful conversation yesterday at the men's breakfast about um, striving for holiness. And we were talking about this basic concept about how trying to do the right thing is very difficult, apart from the sanctification of God. And in the sanctification process, how many of us, including me, at the beginning, being a new Christian, still had this intense struggle, but how the sanctification process brought us out of this default sin setting. Augustine had a phrase that expressed our fundamental human inability to make these right choices. In Latin, he wrote, non posse, non pecare, which means not able not to sin. We do not have the ability at all to not sin. We are going to sin. Unaided by God, a person simply is unable to stop sinning and choose God. That's what radical inability is. Man, having used his free will badly in the garden, Adam, the first man, lost both himself and his will. The will is free of righteousness, but enslaved to sin. The will is free to turn away from God, but not to come toward him. Augustine argued that salvation is a matter of grace from beginning to end, and not just what theologians call prevenient grace, this idea that that God sprinkles in just enough grace at the beginning of your conversion to bring you to Christ, that that he's going to help you a bit. It's a little nudge. Not that, not, not this idea of any partial grace, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 well-known passage, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. You did not contribute to this. Don't get up on your high horse thinking you're better than everybody else because you've been saved by Christ. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. It's like if you're trapped in a burning building and the firemen show up, and they knock down the door, and they dash in there, and they throw you over their shoulder, and they run out with you out of that burning building and save your life, and you're put on the sidewalk, brush yourself off. Ha, look what I did. 
It's the same idea. God is saving us from the burning building of sin. And we should not dare boast of that. So this debate goes on. And Augustine eventually wins the debate. It wasn't, you know, of course it wasn't uh, a formal debate. They didn't meet and and have judges and whatnot. Um, But the church gathered in the Synod of uh, Carthage. It was a, it was a, a, like a, a council meeting in 418 AD. And they examined the arguments. And they declared Pelagius' teaching was heretical. It was condemned. It was not to be taught. But what happened? The church drifted back towards Pelagium in the Middle Ages. And it's drifted back time and time again. It seems like we cannot give this up. Why can't we give it up? Well, we want to be autonomous. We want to make the decisions. We want to be the masters of our faith. We see it today. We see Pelagianism and its effects today. Um, I think the effects are very strong. I mentioned this this before in the Wednesday night Bible study. If you've been there, um, you, you, it's going to be a repetition, but, um, but it's worthwhile to talk about because it's, it's, it is an issue. So we know if we look at the, um, the research polls done by Pew Research Center or Barna or any of the others that, that examine um, Christianity and the life of Christians in the world, we know there's some disturbing things that we see in their polling. We see that the effects of our fallen condition inside the church don't seem to be much better. We don't seem to be dealing with it better than those outside the church. We seem to be trapped in the same sort of sin cycle, right? Our divorce rates are similar. Um, there's, there's an issue with our, uh, our young people leaving the faith Um, after they go to college, so on and so forth. So there was a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame by the name of Christian Smith. So um, Smith was intrigued by this. Why why is it that the, the church is not doing any better than the secularists outside the church? Why Why do we have these problems? So he was primarily interested in the idea of of young people who were brought up in the church from the very beginning and then go off to college and then completely abandon their faith. Why is that, he pondered. Well, what he found is that most of the churches in the West, in the U.S., are not teaching biblical doctrine, that, that people are not learning about the God of the Bible. They're learning about a God that's very, very different. A God that's very much connected to Pelagianism. And Christian Smith coined a term for it, moralistic Therapeutic 
baptismo. Moralistic therapeutic deism is being taught that you just have to try really hard. You just make right decisions and you do the right thing. And you know what happens when you, when you try to do the right thing and you do the right thing more often than not? God lets you into heaven. Yeah, that's the way it works. It's just a matter of trying really hard. And therapeutic, because do what feels good for yourself. You know, don't, we don't want to talk about sin because that makes people feel bad about themselves. We're going to just take that off the table. And you know what? We need to stay out of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has nothing to do with the New Testament. Jesus brings grace. God is love. That's the main thing. It makes us feel good. We don't have to confront our sinful condition, right? You feel good about yourself. That has made our society the wonderful place it is now because it's all about feeling good about yourself. In deism, the concept of God, a God that is far away. No, God is not involved in the world in, a, in an intricate, minute fashion, day by day, much less minute by minute, second by second. Smith says, this is why our children, I shouldn't say are, because I, honestly I don't know if Christian Smith is a Christian. He teaches at a Catholic university, but I don't know his faith. Probably Catholic. But anyway, he says, this is why kids are leaving the church, because they don't need the church. You're teaching them that they have the power to make their lives good. All they have to do is feel, feel good about themselves and do a little bit more good than bad. We know it's not working. The church has departed from its historical doctrines. The church has departed from its creeds and confessions for the most part. Thankfully, from my perspective, I'm seeing more of a turning back towards that. And I'm coming from that perspective, and I'm offering this to you. I know many of you have been blessed to be in a confessional Reformed Baptist church for a large portion of your life. I am fairly new to Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. I've been here three years. I came from an Arminius denomination where I was the Reformed guy, you know, in, in the church. And, and, and eventually I knew I had to come to a Reformed church. To me, I see this idea of the doctrines of grace growing. And it may seem to be growing, you know, slowly and bit by bit. Maybe it's, it's kind of like a glacier from our view. But I, I do see this growth. I do see God working. Especially, and this is what I'm most thankful for, is that it seems to be happening a lot with young people, young adults, people that are in their 20s and in their 30s. It happens when you read your Bible, when, when the Word of God is preached to you. And you listen, and you take it in, and you meditate on God's Word. And you realize it's not about making you feel good at the moment. It's not our job as, as preachers to stand up here and castigate you and make you feel horrible. 
But our job is to preach God's word, which is the truth. And oftentimes, we realize that we're off base when the truth is being taught to us. The next argument that we want to talk about, and we'll just, we'll just start to get into it, a little introduction. is between two other well-known men in the church, Martin Luther and Desiderius Erasmus. Did I spell his first name right? I never can remember. Well, I figured you... (laughs) It's good enough, right? So anyway, this debate, of course, comes at a later point in time from Augustine and Pelagius. It takes place in the 16th century. So we're talking a good thousand years later This debate comes back up. We all have heard of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was, famously, was an Augustinian monk who struggled with the idea of perfection, sinless perfection, that he was trying to make the right decisions time and time again, um, but could not. And it was making him almost literally crazy. And from his writings, apparently it did make his brother superior at the monastery he was in, it did make that man crazy, who finally told him, Martin, go out and commit a real sin, then come back to me to confess. You're driving me nuts here. You're coming in here with basically nothing. You're bringing me nothing, and you're just, you know, you're just all... Falling apart because you didn't think something through properly and you had this thought, go do something really bad, then come back. And then we'll deal with that. Well, of course, you know, that's legendary. We don't know if that really happened. So we know that um, in 1517, on October 31st, Martin Luther is now a young professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg, which is a relatively unknown university. It's pretty much brand new. And he goes up to the door of the cathedral at the University of Wittenberg, which is run by the church. That's how, that's how universities worked in. And what does he do? He nails something to the church door, right? The 95 Theses. And that sounds like, and it's often depicted as an act of rebellion. This brave, this brave professor going up and basically challenging, throwing down the gauntlet to the Roman Catholic Church. Well, no, the door at the cathedral, in essence, in those days, was like a bulletin board. And what Martin Luther did was what virtually every young professor that was trying to earn his spurs, so to speak, in theology would do. He would challenge other theologians to a debate. And you did this by nailing 
your debate topics to the bulletin board. And then others could read them. And another theologian, hopefully someone that was very well known and very well respected would read it and say, hmm, this is interesting. I'm going to take young Martin up on this and I will debate him. Then Martin Luther becomes more well known. Now, I've kind of cast this in a, in a light that detracts from Martin Luther. I, I just realized that. And, and I really don't want to do that. that he, did feel, he did feel very strongly about these things. It wasn't, it wasn't all about you know, um, publicizing his own career. It wasn't all about that. But that was part of it. And, and the important thing for us is that he did feel strongly about these things, and he felt that they needed to be debated in the church. Martin Luther was full of hope, as we often are when we're young, that if we discuss this reasonably, like trained men of the church, that we will realize that the mother church has gotten off course here. And we need to bring the church back into line with Scripture. That was Martin Luther's hope. Now, Erasmus was one of the most well-known men in Europe. He was not really a theologian. He was a humanist. Now, a humanist in those days was much different than a humanist is today. Secular humanism that we deal with today basically denies the existence of God. It's atheism. Atheism. It's, it's centered on the idea that man is predominant in everything. But humanists, back at this time, humanists were basically the people of letters. They were interested in literature and language. It's much like uh, if you were to go to a, a really good uh, college or university and major in liberal arts. You know, hopefully, if it's a, if it's a traditional liberal arts program, you're going to be dealing with all sorts of literature and language. Um, that was Erasmus's uh, claim to fame. That's what he was all about. He was so much into language. He's known for um, his, his translation of the New Testament, his Greek New Testament. So he was interested in that sort of stuff. He wasn't really interested in theology. It just did not attract him. So these two men come together and have a debate. Again, not a formal debate. They don't meet. But there's an exchange that goes back and forth. It's actually started by Erasmus. Erasmus tells King Henry VIII, and we all have heard of King Henry VIII, he of many, many wives, he tells King Henry VIII that he is going to write a challenge to Luther. Luther is well known at this time. The Reformation is, is, is moving on. Um, it's, a, it's a challenge to the Roman Catholic Church. King Henry at this time is a staunch, staunch Roman Catholic because he's still happy with his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. He doesn't need to leave the church and create his own church until he wants to divorce her and the Pope won't let him divorce her. But at this time, he's fine with it. And he's written a lot of stuff theologically. If you've heard the British monarchs 
full titles, you'll hear in there that the British monarch is described as the defender of the faith. That title was earned by Henry VIII, granted to him by a pope in eternity, that the British crown would be known as this because of Henry's staunch opposition to the Protestant Reformation and his theological writings in regards to the validity of Roman Catholic theology. So, I've set the stage. Hopefully, we'll remember this for next week because we've run out of time. But we're going to talk about this debate. This debate that we'll call the bondage of the will from Martin Luther's book of the same name. If you've not read it, I encourage you to read it. It's not a difficult book to read, but it's, it's a marvelous book. I think it's the best of Martin Luther's writings. And honestly, that man had a sense of humor. There's parts in that book I had to laugh out loud. Out loud. So um, try and tackle it. I encourage you. you know, but we're going to be talking about that next week. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer so we can have a short break before our 11 a.m. worship service. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've had to um, talk about the doctrines of your grace, Lord, and how they affect us. Lord, um, just let these ideas sink into us, percolate in our thoughts. You know, let us take them into our hearts and mull them over. Father, um, we just thank you for your word and your revelation. Lord, bless the preaching that is to come and our worship service to come at 11 a.m., Bless Pastor Steve as he comes forward to deliver the word, Lord, and we just give thanks and we glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.